2: I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup: Guy Dami, Karen Feinerman, Bonawen Eisen, and Nadine Turman. Tonight on Fast, records fall on Wall Street. The Dow and S&P 500 closing at all-time highs. Coming up, we'll break down how our traders are playing the record run. Plus, slamming the brakes on QuantumScape shares plunge as a short seller calls the company a quote pump and dump scam that makes Theranos look like amateurs. You'll hear from the man behind that report. And attention, frequent flyers. We'll tell you what Delta just said about the future that could have this stock taking flight. But we start off with new developments in the Reddit rebellion. Remember when Chamath Palihapitiya and Elon Musk stepped in to defend GameStop a few months ago when shares went wild? Well, now David Einhorn is blasting the two for adding, quote, jet fuel to the fire. Let's get to Leslie Picker with the latest. Leslie.
3: Hey, Mal, that's right. Einhorn is really blasting the regulators. He believes they're allowing, quote, quasi-anarchy to rule the markets. And as one example, he points to tweets made by Chamath Palahapatia and Elon Musk championing the Redditors. Einhorn says their comments at a, quote, critical moment further destabilized the situation with GameStop. As a reminder, on January 26th of this year, Palahapatia tweeted that he bought GameStop calls. Musk later tweeted GameStop stonk on that same day. Shares of the video game retailer surged to their peak of about $350 a share the following day. They've never reached that level since then. Palahapitiya also appeared on CNBC to discuss GameStop. Neither responded to our request for comment in response to the Einhorn letter. Einhorn, though, of course, a longtime Tesla bear and Elon Musk critic says quote, the laws don't apply to him, he's referring to Musk there, and he can do whatever he wants. Now, I just got off the phone with a market regulatory expert who told me that it's hard to legally distinguish between the comments made by Musk and Hapatia on GameStop from those uh, when Einhorn himself publicly comes out for or against a company. That said, this person notes that from an ethical standpoint, business celebrities do have a responsibility to think about how their words might impact the financial of those who follow them into a particular trade. I also just spoke with Amy Lynch, a former SEC and FINRA regulator, who says that regulators have not finished looking into trading surrounding GameStop just yet. So uh, this story is not quite over, at least from the regulatory standpoint. Mm -hmm. Melissa.
2: Chapters continue to be written. Leslie, thank you, Leslie Picker. (laughs) Anarchy in the eyes of David Einhorn guy, but freedom of speech in the eyes of others. What do you think?
4: Yeah, freedom of speech. Absolutely. Listen, so right now, as we sit here, Tesla, there's a market cap of 700 billion dollars ish. Right. He's the CEO of that company. Uh, He also has 50 million uh, followers on Twitter. This is Elon Musk. Why on January 26th, after the market closes, like what's the point of tweeting game stonks, two exclamation points? I mean, I'll, I'll use the word. It's asinine. Like if it's sport. You know what, find a better sport. Go do shooting clays or something. But you know, the stock that day closed at one forty seven ninety eight. Two days later it was trading four eighty-three and it traded in a range of one hundred twelve to four eighty-three. Like I don't understand that. It's not particularly funny. It's not particularly clever. And what purpose does it serve? So I'm sort of with Einhorn on this one. Is it illegal? No. I'm not suggesting it it is. Is it is it infantile? A hundred percent. And does it have far reaching ramifications? Mm-hmm. Like you know, I'm sure it's, it's clever and funny to him and his pals. For a lot of people, made a lot of money. I'm sure a lot of more people lost a lot of money.
2: Right. It seems a little bit, Karen, of the pot calling the kettle black. I mean, David Einhorn does come on air. He does tweet himself. He puts out letters stating what his positions are. So why is this any different? It's just that the, in the age of social media, the impact is, is more immediate. But it's, it's all the same, isn't it?
5: I think you're making an excellent point, right? We know David comes out and um, has positions, that he, and he tells us what the positions are and why he, you know, is short or long or whatever it might be. He makes one other point in the letter that I thought was interesting, which is he's pointing out Chamath just, you know, uh, going after Robin Hood and how terrible Robin Hood is and not really at the time disclosing that... Um, or not going out of his way to disclose that he has a so position, which one could see as a potential competitor mm. to Robin Hood. And so David makes that point, which is interesting. But I agree. I, I think free speech. I think, you know, Chamath said, I'm long calls or whatever it was, the 115s or whatever he bought and gave them to charity. But I do think it is a little... Uh, irresponsible to add fuel to the fire, unless you really don't believe that's fuel to the fire. I right. kind of do, so uh, so uh, I I agree with Guy um, that it's it's I don't it's somewhat immature. I don't really know why they felt he felt a need to do that, but uh, also free speech and he did say what he was doing. Full disclosure. If he hadn't said that, then I would feel differently.
2: Right, and disclosure is is sort of interesting in this era of of social media stock influencers and asset influencers. We see this time and time again, particularly within the crypto community. I mean, think about Dogecoin, for instance. And I just raise this because many people say there's nothing to Dogecoin, including the creator of Dogecoin. And yet all these celebrities come out and they tweet about Doge. And here we are with Doge, it has a massive market cap. Um, and has gone up a lot this year because so many celebrities have gotten behind it. So we live in an era in which influencers have a big role. The question, though, Bonoan, is there is no transparency surrounding these influencers. So as Karen had mentioned, you know, Chamath didn't go out of his way to disclose a position in SoFi, which could be construed as a competitor. There are all sorts of other things that are tangled up that we might not know about anybody who tweets about any sort of stock out there who have a position enough to, to influence how the stock trades.
1: Uh, Yeah, I I think Karen makes a really good point in terms of disclosure, right? I I think that was a critical point that was omitted or forgotten or I don't I mean, I I don't know. It's it's hard for me to point fingers without knowing the, the full story. But I think that's just it. Right. We're all essentially in a situation where these people do have influence. They are social influencers or celebrities and they're using it to their advantage. And we've seen that from everything from our former president to to other investors or speculators. So it's really hard for me to kind of part and parcel what exactly should or shouldn't happen. Yes, certainly it is adding fuel to the fire, but I think this whole GameStop situation is highlighting just the effect that social media is having on the stock market. And there's a lot of pushback there. To me, it speaks to the evolution of how information is going to be disseminated. GameStop is somewhat of a uh, a, a one-liner, not a lot of color around that. Mm-hmm. Clearly, I do think he knew what he was doing. But if, if, if investors are buying GameStop on a hashtag, I think you kind of assume that risk.
2: <laughs> um, Nadine, I think it was interesting that Guy, Guy had mentioned, you know, that he thinks it was stupid or immature or, or whatever it is. Uh, you, be that as it may, was anything wrong done, do you think?
0: Well, Mel, I think that number one, what Karen said, it's about disclosure. And two, what Bonwin says is if you're going to play in the market and not play in a lot of information, you're assuming a risk and you should know what you're doing. So, again, all for democratizing, trading and investing. But at the same time, you know, it's up to you to decide how much capital you put at risk. And over time, I do believe the regulators will be looking into this. They will be probably... Um, firming up some rules around a disclosure, um, as well as information and how you can trade, what you can trade, the leverage you get. So I think this is part of the evolution. It was just, as uh, I think Bonoin said, it's a bit of a data point, but there's been enough data points that I think that there will be changes. All right.
2: Um, well, let's turn out to today's blowout retail sales report in the bond market responding with this.
6: you right. That's the fifth floor problem.
7: Mountain okay.
2: That's right. Bond investors batting away inflation fears like Dikembe Mutombo bats away free throws in that Geico commercial. Yes, I did make a sports reference, and I actually do know who this guy is. (laughs) Check out the reaction 10-year note following the second-best retail sales report on record. Yields falling to their lowest level in more than a month, even as consumers armed with stimulus checks pump tons of money into the economy. So given today's action, is the bond market giving investors an all clear that inflation really is just temporary? Karen, you tweeted this almost right away. What was your take of this?
5: confusion was my original take on it. (laughs) And uh, you know, normally we would see retail numbers like that. And you would think, okay. Inflation. And uh, we've talked a lot about the Fed talking about in tra- uh, transitory inflation. And so I was wondering, all right, is, w- is that what the bond market's thinking here? So I turned to my friend Andy Constan, who helps me understand all things fixed income. And he was saying that yes, the bond market may believe it's transitory, but also the VIX is down. And so risk premiums are down. So people want to take more risks. And one other thing happened as rates went lower. That made the likelihood of mortgages refinancing go higher, and therefore those who owned a lot of mortgages, the duration of their book got shorter. So they needed to buy longer-term bonds, and yeah. that's what really started to move it later in the day. So it's kind of a, a circular effect there. It It's. It's still. I still have trouble completely getting my arms around But the basic bottom line is, you know, all risk assets. Be in all risk assets because the Fed is there. And um, okay, we can't fight the Fed. You know, for me, I, I'm staying long. But when the VIX starts to trade down to this level, I have to look at buying more protection.
2: Yeah, um, five, one five seven that allowed technology to do well. That allowed the S and P five hundred to hit a record. Bonwin, what was your take on, on all this action?
1: Uh, well, Karen's first point, I, I tend to agree with uh, fully lockstep. Right? You see these retail, you see these retail figures and you would expect there to be a correlate to to inflation but well, what i will say is You know, a lot of us were saying, listen, the the volatility around this rate change that we've seen over the last, I don't know, one to two months has just been astronomical and it seemed to be somewhat getting ahead of ourselves. And we've seen the same type of dynamic happen with corporate earnings where there's a contrarian trade. It becomes crowded. Everyone piles in. Then the data is disseminated and people tend to like either take profits Mm -hmm. or fade the move. And I think you you saw that translate into the bond market today i think we're in a bit of a range i'm hesitant to say we're certainly out of the woods with inflation but i do think it highlights exactly what the fed is trying to get at which is we're going to react to data that is long-standing in its presentation and then there's also going to be some hiccups, as we've seen it with, with some of the COVID vaccines. Any, any semblance of us not having a linear path to reopening right. is going to have effects that reverberate through the market. And I think you saw that today.
2: Yeah. And, and if you are a believer that rates are in a range, then, Nadine, this is a signal, right? I mean, if, if we are to believe, putting together what Bonwin just said, if there are a lot of shorts in the bond market to begin
0: with, they cover today, maybe. <laughs> and so what do you do now? Sure. And in fact, I laughed because I read a headline from RBC calling it the Costanza trade. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> what did we do? We actually just shorted treasuries. So uh, if you think yields are going to go up as we do, I mean, everything from lumber to materials, you're seeing some labor pressure and services. It's a matter of time in our opinion. it's less than about supply, and it's also less about this retail number. I think everybody knew it was going to be a solid number. And so Bonolan's right that, yes, you saw some whether it's profit-taking or people taking some chips off the table here and, or covering some shorts. but over the intermediate term, there's a lot of uh, pressure here. And some companies are pushing it through the consumers, but some yeah. have not yet. So we think that it's the intermediate term we're going to see it go up. I mean, we, we heard from Pepsi. That input costs are going
2: up uh, today. The lumber guy, which I know you follow very closely, lumber futures hit a record. Um, And I guess the question here (laughs) is: Is does does transitory still have an impact on what businesses do, and is that is that a negative impact on the economy, regardless of how the Fed uh, regards these these blips in inflation?
4: No, uh, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Look, first of all, I'm shocked that you knew who Dikembe Mutombo is. Uh, I Wait, say even, better, even better, even better. Uh, so, still...
2: so the producer told me that that was going to come up in the commercial. I said, oh, yeah, didn't he play for UConn?
4: You know, you insult me when you you, I know that. you're trying to tweak me, and anyway, you're not going to be successful. <laughs> go ahead. I mean, he's another great George. Just one of the many, many great people to come out of Georgetown University. Number one, <laughs> number two. Look, if you had told me what these retail sales number, and then you said, "Okay, where 10-year yields going to be at the end of the day?", I would have said at least 1.85%. So once again, I would have been wrong. It's it's fascinating to me how well the bond market traded. To answer your question, I mean, at a certain point, everything's transitory, right? Because if prices get to a certain level, then sputter out. Inflation, and Steve can speak to this, flattens out as well. I mean, there has to be a continuation in order for it to keep going higher. I'm not an economist. I don't pretend to be. I will tell you, as you mentioned, lumber prices through the roof. We heard heard Goldman Sachs talk about copper, I think, today Mm -hmm. through the roof. Soft commodities. Look at the grain market through the roof. Gasoline going higher. All these things point to extraordinarily inflationary times, and yet we have a bond market that traded exactly the opposite today. Today's action in the bond market made zero sense to me. You can explain it to me five different ways, and Karen did a great job. It still doesn't make any sense to me.
2: Yes. Add soy, add corn on top of a labor shortage. so labor costs might be going higher. Um, but let's bring in the aforementioned Steve, Steve Leisman, that is. Steve, what was your take on the market reaction to this report this morning?
8: Um, I-, I will tell you that I-, I talked to a bunch of guys in the bond market, and they're uh, – kind of got one of those wow things going they're just like a little bit out of breath for the trade that happened by the way not only beginning at 8 30 this morning but take a look at what happened after three o'clock you've you've clawed back about half the gains in yields that you that you had from the drop from eight thirty this morning so you went like 161 162 down to 151 now you're back to 158 so about half of those the yield is clawed back there um, what I've heard was a story was this, beginning with the morning, actually the day before. As strong as retail was, Melissa, I heard that it could have been even stronger. And there was some concern or some talk on the street that you might be well into the double digits on the retail numbers. Some of the high frequency data we follow was pointing in that. Direction. Add to that, a lot of people got short the in that, you know, thinking hey, maybe we 175, 75, a straight shot over the two already. Um, and then thing I heard was that the Japanese who left the market at the end of the quarter to fix up their books in time for the end of the quarter, uh, they may have come back in to buy together with the mortgage buying mm-hmm. that was talked about earlier, so all those things combined bunch of guys short, bunch of people coming back into the market um, and and actually the market is is kind of thinly traded these days with the Fed doing a lot of the buying, so all of that combined into a big move I mean this was a pretty dramatic Move, but, but does it mean that the inflationistas are finally vanquished? I, I, I think that the consensus on the market is that um, the inflation will be temporary. I don't think that's an outlying opinion anymore. I think mm-hmm. that the, the Fed has embraced it, the market's embraced it, everybody's embraced it. So we're ready for a bit of a ride on the roller coaster, and we're not going to lose what's in our stomach in the process.
2: Steve, you know, I've been thinking about this inflation issue a lot. Um, <laughs> which sounds odd, but uh, in terms of as how... As much as
8: you were thinking about the Camp Bay uh, as
2: More. <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of inflation and how it's regarded as transitory, I mean, I, I feel like the same argument was made when there were tariffs, the threat of tariffs, when tariffs were put on. Those, that impact, that price shock was viewed as transitory as well, and yet we did see that impact last longer, have impact on, on how businesses planned, And so it wasn't transitory, or even if it were transitory, it still had a big impact. And I'm wondering if if we should maybe think about this inflation shock in the same way, because, as Guy had mentioned, there are so many inputs that are reaching record highs here. We are also seeing, as we saw in the Beige Book, a labor shortage. We can't find people to fill these jobs. We might have to pay more. I mean, all these things add up, don't they?
8: They do. But really, when we talk about inflation Rising, We're talking about the second derivative of the inflation calculation, which is itself a derivative. So let me put that into a little bit of English here. Well, I'm sure you get that. But the idea is you have a tariff. And, 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 and the, the take on the tariff was right, Melissa. A one-time upward shift in prices that did not repeat. So you did not have increasing inflation rate as a result of that. Um, same thing is believed to be true with what's coming now. You have supply shortages, disruptions. Um, If you tell me we are not going to reestablish global trade links, if you tell me that suppliers are not going to solve their shortages problem, if you tell me that people who are out of work now are not coming back to work, Mm -hmm. then I think you may have the makings of an inflationary, a change in the inflationary mindset. But that's what it takes. If A one-time upward shift in the price level is not the kind of inflation the Federal Reserve would worry about. It hurts. It's not necessarily a nice thing to happen, especially if your wages don't go up along with it. But if it's just that one time, then that's okay. I guess is the best way to put it.
2: Karen, how do you think about it as it impacts the companies you're invested in, particularly as we've seen margin expansion over the past year, thanks to the pandemic and cost cutting and getting smart and efficient, etc.? Those margins look like they they will start to diminish.
5: Yeah, I, it's important to me. The the biggest sort of knee-jerk reaction, some of the things I own have, is financials, right? So we saw the two-year, 10-year spread, which had really widened a lot, actually moved a lot today the other way. And so the banks, which everyone knew bank earnings were going to be great, so they responded some up, some down. but. Um, that, I think, weighed heavily on the banks today. But I'm wondering also, though, do we not give enough uh, attention to some of the deflationary things like slowing population growth and increasing productivity? Um, I, I don't know how to weigh those. But I think the, the ones that are apparent are inflationary, like lumber, like, you know, grain, like all the things we're talking about. But can, I think there's another side to it Can I, can I, to I respond to well. that
8: very quickly? Yeah, last word, Steve. I just want to respond to that very quickly. If you think about the amount of money the Fed is pumping out into the economy right now, you think about $120 billion a month in a mortgage and bond purchases, zero interest rates. And, you know, we're kind of worried about we're going to get to 2 percent inflation. That may, maybe speaks to what Karen's talking about, the incredible deflationary forces still at work in the global right. economy.
2: Good point there. All right, Steve, always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Steve Leesman. Coming up, a pump and dump scam that makes Theranos look like amateurs. Those scathing words sinking shares of QuantumScape today as a short seller takes aim. We will hear from the man behind that report and tell you what QuantumScape is saying in response. Plus, Auntie Up shares of DraftKings jumping in the after hours as accompanying company inks a sports betting deal with the NFL. The details and how to trade this name when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of DraftKings jumping in the after hours. DraftKings, Caesars, and FanDuel inking brand new deals with the National Football League. DraftKings will become the league's official sports betting and daily fantasy sports partner, while Caesars will become its first ever casino sponsor. Caesars and FanDuel will also be allowed to use the league's exclusive data stream and integrate official highlights and footage into their platforms. Bonoan, is this worth a 5% pop in DKNG?
1: Just one second while I tweet out uh, DraftStonk. Um, listen, I, I think this is actually, I think this is actually a pretty big deal here. Um, it kind of expands the offerings. I think we, we're all, we've already spoken about the secular trend to online sports betting, and this partnership, this exclusivity, not just in daily sports, sorry, daily. Um, Jesus, daily fantasy uh, betting, but also sports betting in general with the NFL, I think is large. I think there's a lot of pent-up demand there. You're starting to see it in terms of attendance to various sports themes and sports events. I, I-, I think this is a winner, and I think this might be what kind of takes the stock to the next leg higher. It's kind of had that double top around $70, and you're starting to see in the aftermarkets it start to trend back higher. I think this is definitely a win.
2: Guy, what's your take? Yeah, I
4: agree with Bono, and I mean— you know, 63 has been that pivot level. If you remember, traded up to 63. I think last earnings report failed, traded down to 56.5, 57 has bounced. I mean, technically it's done everything right. The concern, and I have no idea, the concern would be, is there another secondary offering in the making? But remember the last time, stock did not trade well for about a month, month and a half afterwards. But short of that, I think you stay with the trade in DraftKings for sure. I'm with Bonowin on this one.
2: All right. We are just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next.
7: Options traders making a big bet that Coca-Cola will pop. We'll bring you that play ahead. And next, the short seller behind that scathing report sending shares of QuantumScape plunging joins us live. We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns.
5: For more than a decade.
2: Welcome back to Fast Money. QuantumScape plunging today after a scathing report from short seller Scorpion Capital, the company calling the EV battery maker a pump-and-dump SPAC scam by Silicon Valley celebrities that makes Theranos look like amateurs. Among the allegations, Scorpion claims QuantumScape is making key scientific and technical claims that are misleading, grossly exaggerated or fraudulent. QuantumScape counts Volkswagen as an investor, but Scorpion's reports says VW employees indicate engineers and battery experts internally are highly skeptical of QuantumScape's claims and they get nice PowerPoint slides and little else. QuantumScape putting out a response, within the past hour and a half, saying in part, QuantumScape stands by its data, which speaks for itself. We have provided higher transparency than any other solid state battery effort we are aware of, with details on current density, temp, cycle life, cathode thickness, depth of discharge, cell area, pressure. We're joined now by Kier Kalan, the author of the short report and founder and chief investment officer of Scorpion Capital. Kier, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me, Melissa. Um, The headline of your report is certainly attention-grabbing. The irony is that some people might say that your report is also a pump-and-dump scam. So let's get that out of the way. You have a position, a short position, correct, in QuantumScape. How big is it? Are you short the stock? Are you short via options? Can you give us some more details and whether or not you you got out of your short position today in any way, shape, or form based on the fall in QuantumScape?
10: We have a substantial amount of risk and exposure uh, related to this short. Uh, we don't disclose the size of the position, but uh, you know our model at Scorpion is we tend to focus on larger cap shorts unless something is at least $5 billion in market cap. We don't typically focus on it, which is an indication of uh, the level of risk and exposure that we like to take in our positions. Uh, we still have a short position. Uh, it's a very high conviction position. We did a lot of work on this name, and, you know, we typically spend three, four months doing a lot of investigative due diligence. So, uh, you know, the kind of exposure that we take uh, is really commensurate with the level of time and effort that we expend into uh, each one of these activist campaigns.
2: OK, so it's a big position for you. But just just to be clear, did you uh, did you get out of any of your position today? You released the report this morning. Did you take advantage of this decline in QuantumScape in any way?
10: You know, we don't really comment on day-to-day trading activities. All that, you know, just suffice to say that the level of exposure here is substantial. Uh, It remains substantial. And this is a uh, extremely high conviction short thesis. And, you know, we don't really think of this as sort of like a, you know, a uh, in and out kind of a kind of a trade. This is a long-term fundamental thesis. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, there's a long history of companies like QuantumScape that have made exaggerated claims, uh, particularly in the battery space, particularly in their niche in solid state batteries. And, you know, a lot of these companies that high profile backers, that automotive companies were behind them, that famous venture capitalists that were backing them. Sure. And it's actually surprising the large number of those companies that turned out to be flops. A lot of them turned out to be, we think, frauds. And uh, we think that pattern of overhyped claims that has really characterized a lot of these companies, the battery space. We think that QuantumScape is a textbook example, and at some point, people will look back on QuantumScape the same way they look at a lot of these companies that have come and gone. So, right. you know, we think it's going to take some time to play out. This is not sort of a one-two-day okay. thing for us, and uh, I'll just, you know, I'll just leave it there.
2: All right. Within your presentation, which is a very long slide deck, I think it's like 160. Pages or so, you actually uh, cited in part, you had a screen grab of an interview that the CEO Jagdeep Singh did recently on CNBC on Mad Money. I want to play that soundbite and then get to some of the claims about the technology because that is at the heart of the short selling report.
6: We've tried to uh, say what we're gonna do and then do what we say we're gonna do. Uh, and, you know, obviously in December, we announced the, um, the, 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 the performance data from ourselves, which was pretty, pretty amazing uh, data. If we say so ourselves, very, very exciting for the industry. Followed it up, obviously in February on an earnings call with the multi-layer results, which was a big milestone. I don't think, I don't think folks were expecting it that, that early.
2: So, so Jagdeep just cited um, a slide deck from a, a December battery report that they had done, and you actually cite some of those slides within your short-selling report. I want to pull up one of the slides, which is on page 94 of your report for those following along at home, um, and it's battery life, and you, you actually, the, it, what, the reason why I picked up on this slide, Kier, is that Quantumscape had this particular slide within their response to your report, and yet you had this slide within your report so it seems like you both are showing the same slide and reaching wildly different conclusions. So the point that you're making here is if you look at the green print at the bottom corner, left corner of the screen there um, in the chart, you make the point that they're, they're saying 1C charged and discharge. What are you drawing at the conclusion of? Because they're saying that that means that the battery life is an hour. What are you saying?
10: So I'm not sure exactly which slide you're referring to, but there, there are two technical claims that they make related to uh, cycle life. And, and you're right. So they, they had a, uh, a data presentation in December where they laid out five or six key technical claims. And our report you know, systematically investigated each one of those by talking to former employees of the company. Uh, we talked to people in the EV battery group of Volkswagen, which is Plunkinscape's partner and the source of the validation of technology. And as we went through each of those claims, including the battery life claims I'll comment on in just one second, uh, they didn't really stand up to, to scrutiny. And on cycle life, they make two kinds of claims, right? And just to kind of step back for a second, you know, cycle life is a very important parameter for a battery, right? A battery has to last. So it has to last for, for you know, typically 800 to, you know, 1,000 charge cycles, 200, 300,000 miles. And it also has to be able to do that in cold weather, right? So you have to show sort of two kinds of cycle life. And when we looked at the data that QuantumScape shows, uh, they're huge red flags. You know, so one of the standard measures of cycle life is something that's called uh, columbic efficiency. Uh, There is nobody who does, you know, credible battery research who doesn't use that metric to talk about the cycle life of their cell. And, you know, there are experts that we talked to that commented on the – they made comments like, you know, there's no uh, slide in the entire presentation where they talk about cycle life, where they use the one metric that everybody in the industry uses uh, to actually uh, back it up.
2: So it sounds like you did a lot of work. You referred to it with a lot of experts uh, to get their takes. And, and when I looked through the report, I didn't see you actually name a lot of the experts and you do concede. Yeah in sort of the caveats of your report, that you spoke to a lot of former employees or, or people who are formerly connected with QuantumScape or Volkswagen, but they are separated from the company, and so some of the data that they have, they are citing, some of the things that they're, they're talking about may be, in fact, um, dated. Why, why wouldn't you give us the names of the battery experts uh, that you consulted with in terms of, you know, poking holes within QuantumScape's claims? That would seem to be the best way to sort of say this is, this is, this is the expert. Here's what he said. You decide instead of distilling it and saying, according to an expert.
10: Yeah. So there, there are several reasons. So, you know, just to step back for a second, right. You know, the the kind of work that we do tends to be very thorough. So we talked to nine former employees of the company and, you know, whether the employees left, you know, six months ago, whether they left three months ago or a year ago, you know, the science is the science, right? There's certain scientific grammars you have to hit for your claim to be credible. Uh, you know, that doesn't really change over the span of, of uh, you know, of, of a few months. Uh, and the battery experts that we talk to are some of the leading researchers in the field, right? I mean, you know, we respect their confidentiality. Uh, you know, Schwartz-Selling can sometimes be controversial. You know, people don't want their names in a report, but the people we talked to are highly published. You know, these are people that are professors in very credible institutions are well-known in the battery world. And uh, uh, the, the, the other reason that, you know, we want to be very careful about uh, mentioning the names of mm-hmm. people is, you know, there's one expert that we talked to who made a very innocuous, critical comment about the company in a public forum. You know, and that expert uh, described reading, receiving some interesting communication from the company that, uh, 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 you know, the, the expert found very distressing. Uh-huh. So I think there's this uh, Theranos-esque-like climate around the company. I think Theranos is actually a very good analogy to describe the kinds of claims that the company is making, the fact that they don't stand up to scrutiny. Uh, there are those Theranos-esque kinds of dynamics. Right. And, uh you know, when you do this kind of research uh, in this kind of a situation, you have to be very careful. Sure. Uh, um,
2: we're just about out of time here, but I do want to ask you one last question, and that is you, you said this is a long, um, high conviction, a long trade that you're in. Um, and you make the comparison time and time again to, to Theranos throughout the report, throughout this interview. Does, does it end that way? Because that's an extreme way to end. Theranos went up in smoke, basically. And the founder of Theranos was on trial. Is that how you see this ending?
10: You know, whether people end up on trial, I have no idea what I can tell you is, you know, as far as the company having a viable technology on the market, uh, you know, in a car, uh, we just don't think that's realistic. Uh, You know, if you look at the battery companies, the solid state battery companies that the same lead investors in this company have backed. There are generally ones that, in fact, I think pretty much all of them went went nowhere. So uh, we don't think it's going to be very surprising quantum scape ends up being another one of those those companies. So I don't think it's extreme at all. I mean, if you have a technology uh, that doesn't stand up to scrutiny uh, and you're doing tests in a way that are uh, cherry picked, mm-hmm. that are not industry standard, uh, you know, they're very unusual, that exhibit all kinds of red flags, I think that is suggestive of a technology that uh, uh, may not be viable. And those kinds of companies tend to go away.
2: Kier, we appreciate your time. Thank you. Keep us posted. Kier Cologne, of Scorpion Capital. We should note we also extended an invite for the QuantumScape CEO to join us. He was unavailable tonight, but the offer still stands for him to join us or CNBC in the future. So let's trade this. Um, Guy, we should note that QuantumScape right now um, up 1.3% in the after hour session. What, what do you make of this whole thing?
4: Yeah, so I was was going to say, Kier, you know, listen, I I never heard of his firm, number one. I didn't read the report, number two. And I can't speak intelligently about QuantumScape, number three. This is what I do know. I admire his temerity for putting this out. They clearly did thorough work. But we live in an environment where somebody getting back to the top of the show, tomorrow somebody could tweet quantum of solace, quantum physics with little rocket ships, and this stock could be up (laughs) 10 or 15 percent. And all the work they've done could be for naught. That's that would be my question. You know, in this environment, is it worth coming out that way? So again, I just find it fascinating. And I'm going to watch very carefully over the next couple of weeks to see what transpires. But that's what I'd be watching for. Yeah.
2: When this report hit this morning, the first thing I thought of, Karen, is that this is a third short seller report, at least that I know of, that went after a SPAC in the EV space specifically. And mm-hmm. I thought, hmm, what's What's going on here? What do you think?
5: Yeah, I thought that, too. First of all, I think they may have been insulting to Theranos. Theranos did a bang up job as anybody on a fraudulent, uh, you know, (laughs) enterprise, but not saying this is that. But I thought that, too. And I'm wondering, is it because I mean, this you know, I don't have any long, short, any skin in the game in the EV battery business. Is it because it's uh, very difficult for retail investors to understand, or it would be for me to understand, you know, cycle life and um, some of the other things he cited. I don't even know what they, what the metrics are that he cited. And so, is it, is it making? Does that lack of retail experience or retail knowledge in the space make it ripe for uh, fluff? Let's say uh, yeah. when they describe how. Uh, and then in the larger space, the EVs is really exciting. That's happening. We're switching to EV, you know, world. We know that. So the macro is there and maybe people just uh, sort of hope on the micro. I have no opinion about this company. I don't know. But I, I thought that exact same thing. We're on the same wavelength there, Missy. Yep. All right. Coming up. Losing
2: altitude, shares of Delta dropping today, despite some optimistic comments from the airline CEO. What it means for the trade, plus the semi-surge, shares of NVIDIA rallying today on the back of a big upgrade. So is this name the ultimate chip play? We've got that and much more when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Delta shares down nearly 3% today after the airline reported earnings. Phil LeBeau's got the details. Hey, Phil.
11: Hey, Melissa, the reason Delta shares were lower, a couple of things. One, a wider-than-expected loss for Q1. But two, the guidance for Q2 on the revenue side may have been a little light of what some people were expecting. So that put the pressure on shares of Delta today. Let's talk about the optimism that was there not only in terms of the analyst call, the outlook, as well as our interview with Ed Bastian this morning on Squawk Box when we talked about what to expect for Q2. A couple of things stand out. Cash bookings have doubled. From January to March, so they are clearly seeing the near-term bookings accelerating. They expect to be break-even by the end of June and then break-even in the third quarter. Travel credits, you know, that's people who have booked the ticket in the past. They didn't take it because of COVID-19 restrictions. That's now just 10 to 15 percent of their bookings. Leisure travel is now 85 percent of the 2019 levels. So it's only down 15% compared to pre-pandemic levels. Here is Ed Bastian talking about the other important component in the future, bringing back business travel.
10: I'm expecting that we're gonna start seeing offices reopen this summer. I think by fall, we're gonna see a pretty significant bump in business travel, starting back. People need to get back to their customers. They need to get back to their own people, get out to the marketplace, continue to, to drive <coughs> their businesses forward. I know here at Delta, we're planning on reopening our campus officially in, uh, in the month
7: of June.
11: If you take a look at shares of Delta, keep in mind that there are two parts of the business that, they basically half the business that is under pressure right now. Business travel, as well as international, he talked about business on the international side, don't expect anything anytime soon, and that's not just for Delta, that's for all the airlines. And by the way, when you talk with the executives, almost all of them say the same thing. Look for the UK to open first before you see uh, the EU opening up. And again, that's not expected to happen anytime soon. You got four earnings reports for the airline industry next week. Mm. You got American, Alaska, Southwest, and United. So we will get a better sense of what their outlook is in terms of the path to profitability next week melissa back to you
2: phil thanks phil bow for us nadine do you have a position in airlines
0: we do we would take a flyer on delta I and mean, if they can generate some cash in june uh, they have mentioned some non-fuel costs going up but we think that this is a bit of a cold spring and it's trading at the low end of our trading range right now at 46 and change, which implies for our high end about 7 to 8% upside on a near term. So we like this type of name where there's a lot of negativity already baked in. It's really about execution, uh, the economy coming back, some of the travel coming back. So, so we like it.
2: Bonwin, where do you stand now? I mean,
1: I think it's an that you can only because you see valuations in every other pocket of the market just so high, right? So you're going to see a flight to things that have underperformed, even though it is up quite a bit from its base. I do think that, that the road to rebounding will be a bit more protracted than perhaps some feel, only because where you're seeing rebounds is in lower margin business. That international and business aspect of, of travel really is going to be what propels this forward. Um, and I'd be looking at those data points.
2: All right, coming up, feeling refreshed? Options traders sure are as they gear up for Coca-Cola's earnings. We're laying out the trade when Fast Money returns. Welcome back. Here's a sneak peek at the Kramer cam. Jim is talking to the CEO of American Eagle. That stock, a big winner in today's session, so be sure to catch the full interview. Top of the hour on Mad Money. Up next on Fast, the big opportunity bubbling up in one soda stock. We'll bring you the name. And as we had to break, we are celebrating Financial Literacy Month by sharing messages from business leaders about the importance of financial education. Here's Bridgewater's Ray Dalio.
8: There are three things that you have to know how to do well in order to succeed. First, you have to know how to make more money than you spend. Second, You have to know how to take that savings and invest it well. And third, you have to be able to know how to diversify in order to invest it well, because that will reduce your risk without reducing your expected return.
2: Welcome back. Pepsi shares going flat despite reporting higher than expected earnings and revenue. The company also reiterating its 2021 forecast. Coca-Cola is on deck to report next week. And one options trader is betting this soda stock is going to pop. Let's bring in Tony Zang. So Tony, what'd you see?
6: Yeah, today we saw some fairly unusual flow here for Coca-Cola, the second biggest name in XLP, the consumer staples sector. Now, Coca-Cola does trade fairly actively, about 53,000 contracts a day. But today, more than four times more calls traded than puts. And one unusual trade that we saw across the tape where a trader bought 10,000 contracts of the September 57.5 call options, for about 96 cents. So this trader laid out almost a million dollars in premium to bet that Coca-Cola will be above 58 and a half by that september expiration and just to put that into context that's about nine and a half percent higher than where the stock closed today while year to date the stock is only up one percent so this is a fairly large and fairly aggressive bet that over the long run over the next two quarters in q2 and q3 that coca-cola is really going to take take advantage of this recovery and what's interesting is that it's only risking 1.7 percent of the underlying stock's value by buying this out-of-the-money call option going out to September.
2: All right, Tony, thanks. Tony Zhang for more options action. Be sure to tune into the full show. That's tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, Final Trades. Time for the Final Trade. Let's go around the horn. Karen.
5: Yeah, my final trade. Weight Watchers. It traded down today. I still like it. It's down maybe 20 some odd percent. They just did a refinancing, cheaper debt. Good for them. Earnings in two weeks.
2: Final in.
1: OIH is approaching that 180 uh, support level. I'd be looking at that as a point of entry.
0: Nadine. Thermo Fisher, best-in-class operator. Love the acquisition of PDD in the CRO space, and I think they're sandbagging with the 125 million dollars of synergies. Guy.
4: Hope Elon Musk doesn't add us. In the meantime, Oracle new all-time high today. ORCL.
2: <laughs> Thanks for watching Fast Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now.
9: What's on the horizon for financial markets?